to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films of Jane Campion. I'm Inga Kang, a critic at the Washington Post, and I'm joined this week and every week by my terrible co-host, Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Hello, big sister. <laughs> hey, Ingu. Always happy to be here. <laughs> this is an especially exciting episode because we are going to be discussing Campion's divisive first theatrical feature, 1989's Sweetie, an 80-minute film that's currently streaming on HBO Max. And we are also very excited because we are with our first guest of the season. David Rooney, how are you? And also, who are you? Hi, Ingo I'm, and Dan. I'm very well, uh, aside from some very sniffly allergies today, hay fever day, um, that no amount of Zyrtec has managed to help. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm well. I'm the chief film critic at Hollywood Reporter, and it's a huge pleasure to be back here because I had such a fun time with you guys talking about Almodovar last last year or earlier this year, whenever that was. It was last year. It was about this time. It was probably October of last year. Oh, wow. A whole year already. Where do they go? Um, as you might have heard from his accent, David is also a native Australian. G'day. <laughs> so we are hoping we can get some cultural context for the country in the 80s and the film scene in which Campion was working in and trying to innovate. I'll do my best. Yeah. <laughs> Dedicated, perhaps unkindly, to Campion's own sister, Anna, Sweetie is a story of sisterly dysfunction. It was written by Campion and Gerard Lee, who met in film school, and the script was initially about their failed romance. The tree that represents death in the film was based on something Lee said about their relationship, about how Campion didn't care about anything other than making movies and he felt like the trees that kept dying in their backyard because she wouldn't take care of them. The character of Sweetie, a tornado of a little sister who crashes her older sibling Kay's house in the Sydney suburbs and won't leave, was based on a male relative of Lee's. Tom Lycos, Kay's goofy boyfriend, was also cast in part because he looks so much like Lee. Sweetie is played by Genevieve Lemon, an actress who would later appear in several other Campion productions, The Piano, playing Daniel's favorite Bessie, Holy Smoke, and Top of the Lake. And, can I just interrupt, and Power of the Dog, her new film. She's the housekeeper to Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons' brothers in that amazing American Gothic farmhouse. Oh, I love that. Thank you. A very young Nicole Kidman also tried out to play one of the sisters in Sweetie, but did not get the role. Sweetie played at Cannes, where critics apparently loved it or hated it. And I think that might be the reception that this movie has on our podcast today. Before we dive into our discussion, Daniel, what happens in Sweetie? Oh, brother. Um, <laughs> oh, sister. Oh, sister. <laughs> oh, sister. You're right. Sweetie is the story of Kay, played by Karen Colston, a young woman in Australia, and how her chaotic sister Dawn, Genevieve Lemon, dominated and wrecked her life. The film opens on Kay having her tea leaves read, telling her she'll fall in love with a man with a question mark on his head. At work, she notices Louie, played by Tom Lycos, a man who just got engaged to one of her coworkers, has a mole on his forehead and a curl of his hair that resemble a question mark, so she approaches him in a car garage, and they embark on a romance together. They move into a house and live together for a happy 13 months. Louis plants a baby tree in the backyard, but Kay, terrified of trees because of her childhood, uproots it and hides it in a closet. Later on, as Kay and Louis are trying to fix their sexless relationship, Kay's sister Dawn, the titular sweetie, breaks into their home and takes up with her producer and lover Bob, played by Michael Lake. She terrorizes Kay and Louis as, they, as she takes over their house. Eventually, Kay and Sweetie's father, Gordon, played by John Darling, comes to stay with them because his wife, their mother Flo, played by Dorothy Barry, has asked for a separation. After a tumultuous time with so much family in the house, Kay and Louie devise a plan to rid themselves of Sweetie and Bob. They get Gordon to abandon Bob at a restaurant and then trick Sweetie with a phone call so they can all three drive away while she's inside. The three drive to a ranch where Gordon's wife Flo is staying and the two reunite. This brings them all back to Kay and Louie's house where, after Sweetie has wrought all sorts of destruction, Gordon and Flo pack her in the car and drive her back to their home. 
A few days later, Louis finds the tree under the bed and storms off, and Kay gets a call from her mother saying that Sweetie has lost it and is throwing a fit in her childhood treehouse, demanding Kay's neighbor, a little boy named Clayton, come over to see it. Kay throws Clayton in the car and arrives to see a screaming naked Sweetie acting as frustrating as she always does, yelling from her treehouse. After coaxing Clayton up while everybody is inside, she and Clayton jump around and pitch a fit until the treehouse collapses, thankfully killing Sweetie. <laughs> and Kay returns to her home with Louie. Oh, massive spoiler. Thankfully killing Sp- Sweetie? Mean. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, do you, rem- do you remember the first time you saw Sweetie and what your reaction was? Yes. I, uh, this is 89. I had left Australia in 83, at the end of 83. So I wasn't actually living there. But I knew um, people who were students at the Australian Film and Television School in Sydney um, a year or two ahead of Jane Campion. I knew of her from her short films, uh, from visits back and forth from Australia. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, working, running an art house movie theater that that released her film Peel, which won the Camera Door for Best Short Film in Cannes. Um, they released it attached to another film. I can't remember whose film that was, but I remember seeing Peel and thinking, wow, this is a really interesting idiosyncratic voice here. And um, so I knew a little bit about her. I knew that she was somewhat of a, an interesting maverick force at film school. And the film school in Australia at that time was a weird place. It was very much a commercial training ground because the Australian film industry was so small um, that, you know, you really had to learn how to shoot commercials more than anything. And, huh. and then from there, move into shooting features. And she and Sally Bongers, the um, cinematographer on this and some of her, on her early shorts and, and on Sweetie, were both kind of separate from the mob because they were from an art school background, whereas everybody else had kind of come up in a more technical way. Um, and also part of the look of Sweetie is very much dictated by that because all the boys, you know, it's still very much a boys club at that time. And all the boys had all the, the fancy moving equipment. You know, I, th- I can't remember if that maybe was the early years of Steadicam and things like that. The film school probably had one one of everything. So all the boys grabbed all the big fancy tools and they were left with the still cameras, which is why so much of Sally Bonger's voice as a cinematographer is about skewy framing and things, people positioned uncomfortably on the side of the frame. You know, it's that sort of visual you see a lot way. here. A lot, yeah. And use of colour is very particular. I mean, very much about, you know, the, the static frame rather than a lot of camera movement. I saw the film the first time in London and I, I really liked it because, you know, it's an incredibly abrasive film. It's a really hard film <laughs> to love. And you can Just see- Just like I wa- Sweetie. Yeah. I mean, you can see I was not in Cannes that year. So I didn't really go to Cannes the first time until 91, I think. But um, so two years later. But I had heard about the very polarizing reaction, you know, the boos, which were, you know, they have been talked up over time. Um, become the stuff of legend, but it wasn't massive booze, apparently. It was a smattering of booze followed by a very decisive, loud applause to drown Can out. And audiences love their booze. Yeah, love their booze. It's a big it's a big thing there. And, you know, it's not a film for everybody. And I love that uh, somewhere in a commentary or an interview, Genevieve Lemon said that when they were in Cannes, Betty Davis died. And in an interview that was republished, Betty Davis said, you know, your film is not very interesting if everyone loves it or everyone hates it. You know, it has to somehow divide. So she felt good about that. And uh, it's really funny that you bring up Betty Davis because I was reading a maybe bizarre, maybe accurate comparison. Oh, yeah. This is Who's Afraid of Baby Dawn. This movie is Who's Afraid of Baby Dawn. <laughs> that was exactly the comparison that this was like the sisters um, in their 20s. Yeah, well, sweetie, at the end of the movie, the the, the flashback that the father thinking back to the innocent sweetie that he had indulged into believing that she was this great talent that was going to be discovered is very baby Jane Hudson. And, uh, you know, I think there's a smattering of lots of things. I, You know, Jane Campion has talked about the influences of David Lynch and Jim Jarmusch. But I mean, I think there's even a bit of John Waters in there. It's like John Waters without the camp. And Dawn, Dawn Davenport, one of the most famous John Waters characters, um, I kind of wonder if that was a complete accident. But anyway, um, so I saw it in London for the first time. I really did like it a lot because, you know, I have my own ambivalent uh, 
thoughts about growing up in regional suburban Australia. And this film is, you know, was really a new kind of suburban surrealism. And it was ahead of the curve of a lot of 90s dysfunctional family films, a lot of 90s suburban surrealism. You know, Tim Burton was the next year with uh, Edward Scissorhands was a very sort of skewed aspect of suburbia, American suburbia. And then 10 years after that was American Beauty and, you know, a million Well, and John Waters, I'm thinking of like Serial Mom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, you know, there was a lot of that, but there hadn't been so much of it in Australian film. And what I found really refreshing is that, you know, this was a film... I mean, I guess the, the, the Australian film most associated with the female voice and the female protagonist, the unconventional kind of maverick woman, was My Brilliant Career with, you know, Judy Davis at her, at her greatest, um, directed by Gillian Armstrong, another woman. But, you know, by comparison, that is actually a fairly decorous film. It's, it's, it's very much in the traditional mold whereas sweetie just kind of trashes that mold and completely goes out there doesn't really ask you to love either of its female protagonists just to find them interesting and i think that's kind of bold and and pretty great and it it opened the door i think to a lot of other australian films with unconventional female protagonists and you know those you can i mean the same year there was a, a very underappreciated film called Seely directed by Ann Turner about a, a girl growing up in 1950s regional Australia who kind of lives in a fantasy life and has a pet bunny and all of these things. And that to me seemed to come out of the same, the same vibe. You know, the Australian film... What do you mean when you say uh, regional? Does that just mean like not Sydney? Not Sydney, not Melbourne. Got it. Um, you know, even the big cities like Perth and Brisbane are still in their way regional towns. Uh, I grew up in Newcastle, a couple hours north of Sydney, and that is, you know, a fairly big town by Australian standards. It's it's probably you know third or fourth biggest city in the country, but it, but it's still a regional town, and you know the suburbs are very much a part of that. So for me, the kind of, you know, the lawns and the the wooden fences and the garden hose and all of that, the clothesline, you know, was all very much a part of growing up. And I love the way she captures all that and kind of subverts it, makes it this strange, scary. Uh, an accommodating place. Yeah, I think one of the things I really loved about this movie is that all of the clothes look so garish. That purple office uniform that Kay wears. Yes. <laughs> There's it's like a, a weird like sickliness to it. Even yeah, though it looked like hospital garb. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where Kay worked for a long time. I'm still not sure. It felt like a bank. By it looks like a it. bank in the one shot where you have Taylor's windows. Right, where like Louis comes in to and to like pick her up or something and all the women are whispering about her. Yeah, but we really only see the office in terms of the soft lunch break the stuff, you know, the the, the, the lunch break room and where all the and others you can are. See, yeah, and all of the other women are sort of like dressed exactly the same as her. And bitching about Kay, who is kind of doesn't fit in and Yeah. And yet, at the same time, she is sort of like, I mean, compared to someone like Dawn slash Sweetie, she does fit in. She's sort of like doing her like bare minimum of like fitting into this mold of conventional femininity. Yeah. But, yeah. But my, you know, my take on Kay also is that she is, you know, she's really working hard at creating a kind of, you know, a normal life, what she perceives as a normal life after this chart, this childhood and upbringing that has been completely dominated by sweetie who was always the center of attention you know indulged endlessly by her father and perhaps to some degree by her mother up to a certain point when her mother says enough you know i want a life of my own which is why she also breaks from the father who is also kind of infantilized in his own way and um i feel like when sweetie comes crashing into their lives again uh that she threatens all of that she brings chaos and disorder back into Kay's life which is already not going so well because Kay is not great at relationships and, you know, she's prone to superstitions. And I mean, I think there's a lot of Jane Campion in that. There's a lot of, I don't know if you've ever met her or done interviews with her, but she has a mystical new agey kind of thing about her that is very much in line with Kay's mystical way of seeing the world and seeing her future. And, you know, she gets a reading in the tea leaves and decides, okay, she's got to marry a guy with a question mark on his head. 
I did read somewhere that Jane Campion put her own penchant for going to psychics in the movie. Look, I've I met Jane a bunch of times over the years. I've done Q and A's with her, which are really hard work. I will be honest; she is not the easiest interviewer. Why is that? Um, yeah. She is just—I mean, I don't want to say off with the fairies, but <laughs> <laughs> she is a little bit, um, you know poetic and wafty and kind of um she wants to talk about what she wants to talk about and that's fine but you know sometimes you don't get answers to your questions and she'll be fixated on one particular thing and but I do remember in Venice one year we were staying at the same hotel she was on a jury I think and or maybe with Portrait of a Lady I can't remember which year it was but two two of these years in Venice we were we were in the same hotel so I got to encounter her quite a bit and I remember her coming down the stairs one day with Alice, her daughter, who was then, I mean, five or six years old. And this was a very snooty hotel, the Hotel des Bains, where Dirk Bogard kind of wept mascara in uh, Death in Venice. And the concierge and all the door, the desk staff were the snobbiest, most wonderful guys, but complete snobs. And as in much France? as people, <laughs> as much as people people uh, complain about the English, there are no worse snobs than Italian snobs. Anyway, they they looked as Jane came down the stairs to take Alice shopping in Venice, um, wearing a snow white pantomime dress, which had been dragging in the dirt for years, probably. So half of the hem was just completely, and they looked like they wanted to call the police. But um, like they just came out of the piano. Yes. Yeah. I mean, quite, quite eccentric and, and all of that. And um, I, but the thing I remember is that somebody, another friend who was staying there at the same time, his bicycle, his rental bicycle was stolen. And Jane, without any irony at all, said, maybe if you think good thoughts, it will come back to you. <laughs> I love that. I love I, that so I much. Kind of love it too, but in a way, can you not see a little bit of K in there? Uh, you know, I, I, it's also very Kenneth Parcel. Yeah. Look, I don't know if I agree with what you say that it's it's uncharitably dedicated to her sister Anna. Anna had a bit of a career as a director for a while, which I think petered out. Uh, I think she was she ended up being the Latoya Jackson of that family. But um, I don't think, from everything I've read, that. Anna was anything like Sweetie. I think Anna had a, a kind of wild side, but if anything, Jane is very warm about acknowledging um, what Anna did to enable her to finish shooting Sweetie because their mother was quite ill. I think uh, chronic depression and, and attempted suicide during the shoot of Sweetie, and Anna was studying in London at the time, and Anna said, you know, you need to finish your film. I'll go back and look after Mom. So I think that the dedication is actually quite warm. I've read very mixed things about that dedication. I, I did read something of that um, sort of like sisterly sacrifice that Anna did for her for Campion. I also read that she uh, was really worried that people would confuse her with the character of Sweetie and like really went out of her way to tell journalists like, this is not me. And if you right. have to tell that to journalists repeatedly, like I'm going to guess that you are not like the happiest about having to do that. Let's talk about the movie. Okay. Um. <laughs> Though I am enjoying all of this campaign. I am knowledge. also. You were saying um, earlier about how neither of these women are particularly likable or relatable, and I wonder if that was a sort of like part of why Daniel and I. Or maybe like not so impressed. I like understand what you were saying about like how it's important as a sort of like historical milestone in Australian film. And yet at the same time, because Daniel and I were coming into this, uh, basically like because we saw this for the first time last week in 2021, mm. when all of the things that it had inspired had already happened, um, it first of all like didn't feel quite as new. Um, I think that's sort of just inevitable. But second, um, it sort of felt to me like there was like, it was like hard to get into because there was like nothing to grab onto in a sense. And I think there's a lot of like indefiniteness in the film that I think, I don't know, if it was like done a little bit like more 
if it was like done in a different way could have yielded a kind of like productive ambivalence but like here just didn't quite work for me like one example of this is i could never figure out what sweetie's deal was is she just like an, an eccentric or is she mentally ill or is she like what is she and i think like if it was sort of like better defined i would know how to place her and therefore how to feel about her and the way that she is treated by her family. And I do like this whole thing of like, Kay has sort of become a kind of quiet, obsessive neurotic because she's grown up with someone who sucks up all of the oxygen in the room. And, you know, she was sort of like bumbling along in her own little way. But when her sister comes, and they're sort of like polarized back again into like a crazy one and like the quote unquote normal one. Like I find that interesting and I think it really does mirror a kind of like 20 something sensibility of realizing that you are actually just someone who's been deeply formed and in some ways damaged by like your childhood and like the family that you grew up in. And as you're going about in your relationship, like seeing how you have been shaped by your parents and your siblings, or like whatever person in your family is basically that dominant figure that you have re that you have formed a personality in reaction against. And yet at the same time, I just sort of kept waiting to be grabbed by this movie. And I think it just like never really happened for me. Hmm. I mean, I do think Dawn is some mentally unhinged in some way i mean the fact that the, it's it's stated at some point that she's off her meds so there is this sense that she's been sedated for much of her childhood or probably by necessity and that she is out and going wild with this crazy flaky stoner guy bob who is her i love bob bob by the way i love, I love, love how bob. he's like already like always asleep that like cracked me up yeah i mean he's a major stoner and a total dead weight as a as a producer he's obviously exploiting the fact that you know sweetie is delusional and thinking she's going to have some kind of career which to dan's as point yeah as a singer or performer i think as a performer because she's quoting lines she keeps quoting a line and which is obviously from an audition at some point for a commercial or something maybe but she so i think that she wants to be some kind of actor some kind of on-camera performer and um you know, there is a bit of baby Jane Hudson there, obviously. There's also a bit of little Edie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, she's a she's a difficult character. I think she is kind of a nut job. And I don't know that you would be able to make that film now without charges of gross insensitivity toward <laughs> um, mental illness. I think that, you know, she is making a, a film at a time when sensitivities weren't quite so heightened around that. So there is a certain shock value in watching it now. And I think you're right that it doesn't seem so new now. But, I mean, I watched it again yesterday for the first time in decades. And I thought the film, yeah, I can see that it's dated. I can see that it doesn't seem so new now. But I can also remember it in its context and thinking it was quite bold for that time. You know, we come from a very male film culture in Australia. And, you know, the jackaroos, I think uh, the, the jackaroos are the, the sheep and cattle handlers. But the films had always been about the jackaroos. They'd been about the sheep shearers and the cattle guys, like Man from Snowy River and Sunday Too Far Away, all these big Australian films, which were hugely commercial, uh, huge commercial hits back in the day. And suddenly the jackaroos are in this film and we don't even see their faces. They're just cowboy hats and long legs dancing and, you know, getting I did love that barbecue. dancing scene. It's great. It's great. And I love that the mother gets to sing. And, you know, the mother... The, both that the reminded mother, me of Volver, actually. Yes. And, and both the mother and father are non-actors. You know, they had not acted before. The father, I think, had done some work as an extra in movies. The mother was a country singer. And so they just... They found out she could sing. And then it's it's like... Sweetie and okay, more to the point, discovers at that point, oh, we didn't even know mom could sing. And I, I think that's a lovely moment of the family, of her kind of looking at her family in a different light. And Gordon also, the father, comes to see the mother in a different light there. So for me, there's a lot of stuff that resonated about Australian families, about 
the kind of urge to escape the family, the stranglehold of the family and make your own life, be your own person and things. And then at a certain point, coming back to that, rediscovering your family and learning to love them and accept them for who they are. And admittedly, Campion goes about Campion and, and Gerard Lee, who wrote the wrote the film with her, go about that in a fairly unconventional, not easy to love way. But for me, it is kind of relatable. I mean, I grew up in that. And I think that despite Jane being a New Zealander, this is very much an Australian film. It really has an understanding of Australia and an Australian suburban life that is, you know, both visual and emotional and just subcutaneous. It's it's just there in the movie. I do think it's like what you just said about um Kay realizing that her mother could sing and like the changes that they all have that it's interesting that that all takes place at this ranch that they're all like they aren't able to see each other as people until they are like away from that suburban life that they've always been trapped in and that they are like away from sweetie almost like who they could have been if sweetie hadn't been the subject of their lives yeah i mean they're in the it's practically desert. I mean, it's almost outback. It's, I mean, I think the town is Warren, which I, I'm not exactly sure where it is. I think it's somewhere near Broken Hill, inland New South Wales. But uh, that's a part of Australia that is kind of weird and scary and rough. And the fact that they have to get outside of their kind of bleak suburbia into this nothing land to discover who they are and to kind of find some connection again as a family, I think is, is actually really lovely. And I think part of that whole thing is that they are able to come out of their social roles, right? You see Gordon, the father in this like frilly pink apron, you see men dancing with the, the Jack Roots dancing with one another. And it's a place where there is a sort of like Freudian, like, that period like when you have not yet become the person that you're going to be and so you're just sort of like full of potential and yeah yeah, i don't know like how much that really accords with actual new south wales but it is definitely like a place the sort of like ill where it is very much set outside like the confines of suburbia yeah you were saying something earlier before about like what about like how this feels like an extremely Australian film to you? And I know that this is like a super simplistic binary, but do you personally have a dog in the fight of whether a champion should be claimed by Australia or New Zealand? Oh like, no, not, not at all. No, not at all. I mean, she's she's uh, she's a New Zealander. Um, okay. <laughs> she's done a lot of work in Australia, and so she's done a lot of particularly Australian work. But she's also done films that are quintessentially New Zealand films, like The Piano, like Angel My Table, um, both of which I completely adore, especially in, a, in Angel My Table, one of the great, great films about, about being a writer. You know, but Sweetie, I think because she was right, fresh out of film school, she had made a mark with shorts like Peel and Passionless Moments and um, Girl's Own Story, which are all kind of fledgling versions of Sweetie in a way. They all have elements that would then flower in Sweetie. And the, the psychology of her, I mean, she, you know, the Power of the Dog, her new film is so interesting because she has a whole career of, of deep probe psychological films about women. And then suddenly we have this, this film about these two men and, and about corrosive, toxic masculinity, all of that. You know, it seems to be a different field for her uh, or, you know, at least a different approaching it from a different perspective. But I don't know, there's a, there's a part that personally I loved in Sweetie, but, you know, I grew up, the worst thing about growing up for me is the sort of get out and mow the lawn or get out and water the, water the garden. They're the chores you hate as a kid. So I grew up, we, and we had a massive backyard with acres of lawn and things. So get cutting that lawn was like a day's work in the sun. Australian summers are brutally hot, and I just hated doing it. You know, I'm not, not a lawnmower kind of boy. Really? I, I don't know. You seem like quite the uh, landscaper yourself. Really? Everything, everything about me screams John Deere to you? Yes, you're, you're, to- you're, give it, you're giving mask. Excellent. I love it. Um, well, I was not. A, so I had dreamed as a kid of why do, we have a, why do we have a lawn? Why can't we just have a concrete backyard? And I had been to sort of some places where people have the ugly concrete backyard and the only thing growing out of it is the, the, the hill's hoist, the famous Australian clothesline that turns around. 
Uh, this film doesn't have a hill's hoist. It actually has a pull-out clothesline, which is completely screwed up by the planting of the tree. It's in the path of where Kay hangs her washing. But, you know, your backyard, your washing line, your lawn, they're all big parts of growing up in Australia. And so to me, that weird, ugly concrete backyard that uh, Lou, Louis basically destroys to grow, grow the tree, and they'll never get their rental deposit back because of that. Um, you know, that to me was just a weird little touch of my childhood. And it felt like there were a lot of those things. Not that my family is anything like the family in Sweetie, but there are just commonalities there that I thought were really interesting and it spoke to me and still speak to me all these many, many years on. Damn. I just, I just have to ask what? Like, you what? You hated it. I didn't, <laughs> okay. I didn't hate it. And I will say, I watching feel like it you is, did hate it. I hated it yesterday. When I watched it with Ingu, I was just like, what is this interminable movie? Why is it? It does have some pacing issues. Interminable. It's like 85 minutes. Come on. Why is it 85 minutes and yet feels longer than both the piano and Bright Star combined? (laughs) It just like, it was really slow. And uh, watching it this morning, I did appreciate it a lot more, I think because I kind of knew what was going on already. And like kind of going in the first run of it, I was just like, as Ingu said earlier, there's nothing to attach to. I, I, the only thing I could attach to was Louis in his underwear. Um, so <laughs> not, even, not, even, not even Clayton, the fabulous, the neighbor kid with the spectacular mullet. Clayton is a delight. I love I love when uh, early in the film, Kay and Louis are both like ducked down in their kitchen trying to hide from this annoying little child. So and, great, which uh, Jane, Jane has said in interviews was, was based directly on her, uh, the kid who was her neighbor when they were growing up. And, and she said that, he would always try to engage them in conversation, have his cars lined up, ready to talk about them and things. And the only way they could get out of a long conversation with the neighbor kid was to duck down under the window and remain unseen. That's adorable. I love yeah. that. I great also story. think it's really great that like one of the very few moments of softness or tenderness that you see with Sweetie is when she is engaging with that neighbor kid because uh, it's, you know, she's able to sort of like get on his wavelength. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lovely moment in, um, I think one of the one of the extra features on on Criterion is that an interview with Genevieve Lemon and um, Karen Colston and Genevieve Lemon talks about interacting with that kid and how being up a tree completely naked, smeared in paint or mud or whatever it was with a five year old boy was was a very weird experience. Um, and she's never had anything like that. In her <laughs> and that he would say things to her like, how do you feel about everyone being able to see your ass? And then the one thing he said to her was that with genuine curiosity was, are you a grown up? And, uh, and wow. they both, she and, she and, uh, and Karen Colson agreed that that was, you know, a great question for Genevieve Lemon at that time, because not only was she not a grown up, but Sweetie is definitely not a grown up. You know, Sweetie is absolute arrested childhood. Yeah. I did love how, uh, as you said, uh, she was like, covered in like paint or dirt or something at in the end of the film. I love how she just continued to get dirtier and dirtier as the film went on. It's <laughs> like she just seemed to get grimier and grimier. There is one point where she, I think she like washed one of Kay's like shirts or dresses or something and like cut the sleeves off. And so her hands were like black and she just seemed like always grubby like a child. Well, she had that sort of weird goth princess look where you know the hair is all sort of black and over dyed and slicked down and the, the black nail nail varnish is, is chipped and uh you know the the outfits are very she was kind of the punky goth version of madonna with the kind of lingerie as outerwear yeah the shine the like shimmery glittery black skirt she's always wearing like, yeah I, I i love i love the aesthetic of sweetie she's like divorced from this film, she's a really fun, weird character that I enjoyed hating, especially the second time through. Like, I appreciated her more than the first time where I was just like, huh, if this were my sibling, I would have lost it. But then I was Oh, yeah, like, I would have run a mile. My... Yeah, exactly. But then I also had the question of, wait, am I sweetie? Yes, um, you <laughs> so, are. Yeah. I don't know. Look, I, I understand what you're saying and i understand that this is not a film forever it's a very hard film to love but i do think there is a ballsiness 
out there about this film, about the way that it presents these two protagonists. It doesn't go for your sympathies in any way with either of them. And there's also something to be said about this is her first film, a first feature, and at first first film work for most of the actors. Both the leads had not really done a, a big feature film before, certainly not a lead role. And a lot of the crew was the first film. And there was a certain amount of incomprehension in the crew. You know, all these guys, I mean, there, there were a lot of women in key roles on the crew, particularly the DP, but also sound recordist, I think, and a couple of others. But a lot of guys who, in their minimal experience, had just not we're not prepared for this weird vision, this very skewy vision of suburbia and family and dysfunction and weird sibling relationships. And I really think there's something to be said for the audaciousness of going out there with this as your first film. But I would imagine that watching it now, you know, Jane Campion's sensibility changed so much from the, the leap from this to the piano, to Angel at My Table and the piano, there were huge, huge leaps. It was and really astounding to me to imagine that, like, this is like a really, like, ragged around the edges film, right? Like, it looks like it has, like, a very tiny budget. It reminds me a lot of, like, the uh, movies that I have seen for a film festival uh, submissions where you're pretty sure like this is never going to find distribution and it was always it was obviously a passion project for the filmmaker but it's so it's so like patently not commercial even though this ended up making some money that you were sort of like okay this is like I'm like happy for you that you got to like make this and so to compare this like the raggedness of this movie compared to the piano just four years later is like so astounding to me in terms of like the leap in artistry that she was able to accomplish. And of course it should be mentioned that the piano has like a far larger budget. Yes, certainly. Uh, but I think like speaking about the, uh, the looseness of it, the feeling of it being a first film, uh, I think that what's interesting about its, uh, presentation on HBO Max is that suggested along with other films like this that you might like is Peppy Lucy Bohm, which this did in a lot of ways like remind me of in terms of the like first film nature of it and the kind of like loose weirdness where it's it's kind of doesn't really know what it is in a way but in like a good way and that like even if it doesn't ever feel like there's anything particular to hold on to there are a lot of like little moments that are so memorable and will certainly stick with me for a while because like she does have a really great eye and ear for storytelling so like even if there are stretches of flab i feel like in the in between those moments those moments really highlight how talented campion is and the like future we have in store for her yeah she figured out how to like cut the fat out. I will say that, like, I really love the sort of, like, lightly satirical element with all of the New Age spirituality of Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, his, like, fixation with meditation, which I, I love Louis. Like. <laughs> Louis is great. Louis is so great. There's also, uh, by the way, you know, the spirituality is also superstition, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Kay seduces Louis next to the number 13 um, spot in the car oh. park. I did not then notice that. The time jump is thirteen months later. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I think there are a couple of thirteens in there somewhere. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of superstition, a lot of you know the tea leaf reading, obviously. Well, and then even Kay like waking up after chasing Louis down while he's like running away after finding the tree, and she wakes up in the like yard of her of the fortune teller. Um, but one other thing I wanted to note that actually this reminded me of and. Uh, I think this speaks to maybe like what you were saying a bit earlier, uh, David, about the um, what this film did for the future of film and the future of women characters and female directors also is that uh, one thing this reminded me of, and Ingo, I hate that I'm saying this, is that this reminded me of Miranda July's Kajillionaire. Hmm. Okay. Um, in its like weirdness. And it's like nothing Another happening, film but things very happen. abrasive and very hard to love. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but hard to look away from as well. And sort of like also in that middle area between mental illness and uh, eccentricity. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that like 
truly the thing I get the most out of this is sort of like, you know how like sometimes like a person in your life comes back into your life and then you regress to the person that you used to be like around that person during that time of your life? Yeah. That is like the thing that like I sort of like cling to in terms of my appreciation of this film. And I do think that like there is so much of the there is so much about like Kay's character that is that basically just like goes directly back to like the time of her life when she was being suffocated by uh Sweetie taking up all of the oxygen in the room. And I love that like, you know, she has this like pathetic like porcelain horse collection. It's, it's a little bit of a steal from Glass Menagerie. Sure, but like it is there, I mean like we were talking earlier about like how Sweetie gets along with Clayton, the neighbor boy, who, like, first lays out all of his cars. And Kay initially is like, ugh, look at him, like, wanting to talk about his cars. But then she does the exact same thing with her horses for Clayton. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, and then sort of, like, in the middle of it, uh, Sweetie, in her inimitable way, takes the horses and chews them up in her mouth. And Kay, by the end, just sort of has to, like, assemble those pieces back together. Yeah, so you see all the horses lined up again at the end with broken legs glued, glued back on or not glued back on, you know, missing a le limb. And I think that's an, an I mean, it, the symbolism is not exactly subtle, but it is a nice sense that, you know, Sweetie is there, certainly made her mark on Kay's life, but Kay's life will go on. And yeah. she has managed to retain some kind of wholeness to her life, despite the wrecking ball of Sweetie coming into it. Yeah. And I initially had a little bit of a problem with Kay's tree phobia, which I know, like, phobias aren't rational, but it seems so completely counterintuitive to me that a tree would represent death, that I was like, ugh, what is, like, this doing? Like, this is so, like, like in-your-face quirky. But I think that, like, over the course of the movie, like, this idea that like what she basically fears is like her connection to sweetie and like the thing that connects them is like a family tree and like by the end of the movie you see sweetie sort of like being like this king kong of like the family tree like the tree like in the family home in her princess castle her, her princess yeah. fairy castle with lights not the tree yeah, and no one else is allowed except for her because it's her castle. And then, of course, like... What bad parenting? I mean, isn't that, like, a part of the movie? I uh, Just to wrap it up, I will say that, like, I really liked how the metaphor of the tree sort of, like, fluoresced, for lack of a better word. And how, like, it tied everything thematically really nicely for me. And so mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like... There are Even times... the root that, like, they had to saw off to yes. bury the coffin in. Yeah, she was plagued by trees. And I think also <laughs> there, there's that experimental touch, which, you know, was not so common back then. The, the you know, the insertion of, found, of um, stock footage of fast, the roots. Uh, you know, fast motion um, footage of roots growing um, in the soil. Black and white footage of roots growing. and Growing through the concrete. Yeah, to me, as much as death, it's about domesticity and fear of domesticity as well, because, you know, she's afraid of her relationship and she thinks that the, the fragility of that tree planted in the backyard is a sign of doom for, for the endurance of her relationship. She, um, she sees those yellowing leaves as a sign that her relationship with Louis is not going to be great, is not going to last. Well, but also that the tree is kind of, it has the, like, part of the fear of it, at least the way I read it, was that, like, those roots have the possibility of destroying her like suburban life because they can break the foundation of the of the concrete and destroy the house that she and Louis are trying to build together. Well, another thing if you grow up in Australia as well is everybody has the bright idea of planting a big gum tree or, or, or you know, some kind of eucalyptus in the backyard or the front yard or whatever, and they always end up being dug out. And it's an incredibly complex um process now you need permission from the council you need certain people to come in and take the limbs of the tree away and everything and uh those trees are big powerful fuckers and they come up through the concrete and they do screw up the foundations of your house so yeah there's that as well but you know i i kind of just feel like it, it her fear of that tree that the the way she takes it and 
rips it out and puts it in the closet and tries to hide it is also just fear of her family coming back to yeah. To, to have their hold on her, you know. And then later, like, the dead tree ending up under her bed. It just sort yeah. of felt like the monster in her life is her family. And, like, yeah. how they have the potential to destabilize her. I mean, none of it is exactly subtle, but but it, I, still <laughs> think it, I still think it's effective. And, I, you know, I, I as someone who couldn't wait to get away from my family and my hometown, I really related to it as just somebody who has struggled to carve out her space. She's still struggling to carve out her space as an adult to figure out who she is, how she fits into the world, how she relates to a potential partner in Lewis. Um, and all of that is suddenly threatened by, by this crazy sister kind of bang barraging her way back into her life. Literally breaking into her house. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think that uh, one, one of the like, final moments that interested me a lot about their relationship is that for all that Kay has been driven crazy by her sister for years and is kind of like built up such a distance that I also wondered why, how did Sweetie even know where Kay lived? Like, why did she give her that address? That's a question for another time. But um, that as Sweetie is dying, Kay is the only one who's like actually trying to save her and is trying to like give her mouth to mouth while the parents are just kind of like standing there, not knowing should they go call an ambulance? Should they just let this obnoxious daughter of theirs die? Like- and there's like <laughs> blood coming out of Sweetie's mouth as she lays dying, like in the rubble of the treehouse. And then um, as Kay leans in to basically like give her mouth to mouth slash kiss her, she ends up with like a bunch of like sweetie's blood on her own mouth and it's yeah. this like really surreal and yet like really like loving shot. I really love like the duality of like all of that like blood on her face. Yes. You know, it's certainly a dramatic ending and it doesn't work. It it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um <laughs> But you know, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> I still kind of loved it. I mean, I don't know where else it could have gone. Yeah. Uh, aside from Sweetie being back on her meds and more easily manageable. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that uh, Joan Crawford wished that Betty Davis had died in a treehouse. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, I also love the the graveyard scene. I love the kind of artificiality of it, the astroturf that's kind of dug up, the bulldozer coming in, filling in the grave. And how Kay stays to watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's very weird and impersonal and slightly surreal. I do think the the view of, you know, the view of Australia here is very weird. Those those apartment blocks that Kate walks walks by in the beginning, you know, the I mean, when I'm in Sydney, um, and I always stay in Bondi, which is a very hipster, beachy suburb now and completely transformed by horrendous developments. But if you go a few streets back from the beach, it still has that 90s, 1950s look of these old 30s, 40s apartment blocks. Uh, there are four or six apartments. It's very uniform, very squat, very red brick. Um, and I just you know, think that that view of that kind of Australian suburbia it really is lived in and lovely and beautiful and there's a there's a very bittersweet attachment to it I you know it's interesting that she Jane Campion has said that she had the script uh she had at least a solid draft of the script for the piano ready before Sweetie was uh was put together wow yeah she worked on that script for a long time yeah and the piano was a much more complex film to find financing for so Sweetie was just a quick project that she could do. But I also think it was, in a way, her exercising this attachment to family and how she, her attitudes toward it, no matter you know, how, how much or how little her own family life is, is directly related to the family in Sweetie. I do think there's something there in just working through that before she can then move on and find her own voice as a filmmaker and explore her own concerns in more complex ways. So I do think this is a, it's a a very interesting foundational work for Jane Campion, even though it's not directly linked to most of her other films. They, they are complete departures in style. Mostly there's, there's a bit of the weirdness 
of Sweetie in certain aspects of Angel at My Table, the the younger years of Janet Frame and Angel Angel at My Table. But you know, I think most of the other films of, of, of Campion are are very very different from Sweetie. You know, it's very much its own thing. But I, I do think that it's in line with her at least. Okay, so I've only so far I've only seen um, Sweetie. Bright Star and uh, the piano, and then the first season of Top of the Lake. But I, it feels very much in line with what she will work on in her future works of like the exploration of the power of female heterosexuality, like what their agency is in relationships, and uh, how like I think that her exploration of like Kay and um, Louis's relationship is so fascinating in its weirdness yeah and i think that also she's threatened by the fact that her house has become a sexless house you know she's ripped the tree out and with the tree being ripped out her sex life with louis is also over she moves into another room and she stays in the other room she claims a cold you know i have a cold so she's sleeping in the spare room but when the cold's gone she remains in the spare room she never moves back into the same bedroom with louis again and they even mention that they're like they feel more like siblings at a certain yes. point, and it's not even until Sweetie moves in and starts starts fucking Bob all over the place and very noisily. Her sex invades the entire house, so it's sort of this inescapable confrontation for Kay with with her own relationship and and where she sees the failure in it, and you know her fears that you know. She, I mean, she's basically curtailed any sexual relationship with Louis out of her own fears, not not out of any, it doesn't seem like there's any lack of desire between them, but she basically psychs herself out of sex with him. And then in comes Sweetie, who is all about sex and just all over the place in her nakedness and her uncomfortable presence. And I I find that dynamic really interesting. Well, and that Louis doesn't seem to like, like Louis seems to get turned on by the, like just the idea that Sweetie and Bob are fucking in another room. And so that's what he tries to like initiate sex with, tries to to lick Kay all over. I do like the scene where Sweetie comes on to Louis on the beach, that weird beach scene with a hideous industrial background on this, on this nice little stretch of beach. I liked Louis in a speedo. Who doesn't? But, uh, (laughs) but um, I mean, you know, even Louis, like full frontal nudity on a man in an Australian film at that time, it just didn't happen very often. So, you know, she was, breaking a lot of rules, doing her own thing. And I, I like that fact that, you know, they made this film for $7.50 or whatever they made it for. <laughs> and uh, that she was just doing her own thing. And I really respect that. And I really think this film remains unique in Australian cinematog- uh, filmography, even though it's, you know, you can see its influences here and there. And it maybe opened a lot of doors. It, I, I do think it opened doors for things like Muriel's Wedding. But um it still remains unique, you know, in terms of it. It's just so out there. It does not does not give you any concessions. It doesn't give you much to grab onto. It's like, these are my people. Like them or don't, I don't care. It made me sad for Sweetie because I feel like if she was born 20 years later, she could have been like a really big reality TV star. Oh, my God. Yes, put Sweetie on Big Brother. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like... I actually really liked the scene, uh, the the nude scene where um, Kay and Louis are laying in that bed fully naked because it is so sexless. It's completely unerotic, yeah. They're like a pair of chopsticks on the bed. Exactly. Which is an interesting contrast to the nudity of the piano, which is like so sex forward, so like intense and passionate in a way, even though it is as like, I did see you drooling on Twitter about Harvey Keitel's ass, Dan. What are you talking about? <laughs> if I could look, if I could look that way at fifty-three, David, I would kill somebody. So let's just say that. Okay. But I just, I think it's, like <laughs> an, it's just a fascinating contrast between the two, where it's like this nudity is so devoid of any attraction versus the nudity that's like so passionate and exciting. Yeah, well, I think that the, the the fact that it's devoid of any attraction or any eroticism or sensuality is also, you know, it's it's exactly where Kay is in terms of that relationship. Well, and like the sexlessness of the suburbs. Yeah, she doesn't necessarily want it to end, but she doesn't really want any part of it, any carnal part of it. You know, she has beca- he has become a weird kind of sibling to her. 
Um, I love that when she wakes up and he's licking her leg, it just oh, I felt like it was a snail crawling up me or something repulsive <laughs> like that. What every uh, man wants to hear. Exactly. All right. Well, that's a great place to wrap up our conversation of Sweetie. But before we go, it's time to do some rankings. Today, we've got The Piano, Bright Star, and Sweetie. What do you think, Ingu? I think that is my rankings, actually. The Piano, Bright Star, Sweetie. Um, I really respect what this movie is going for, but like as like a visceral experience, um, I just don't feel like I can really connect with it as much and i think that the artistry of bright star really carries it through for me even if i if i was skeptical of some of the elements there so me too but ben wishaw is such a genius actor i i think that i really am happy that i saw this movie as an understanding of campion but it definitely is the one i would recommend last of the three we've seen i think that it uh, is something you have to choose to go into rather than just a movie to put on to watch with friends or something. It's It feels like there's a, a little bit of work you have to do as a viewer to like get it or get into it. Or to like make sure that like the flabby pieces don't completely lose your interest. You have to like get yourself a little psyched up for like the movie in order to like keep going. Exactly. I I like was lost in both the piano and bright star watching them both times I watched each, like those were so easy to just, uh, fall into and enjoy luxuriate in. Whereas this film, I felt like I had to consciously at times say like, well, I'm watching a movie. <laughs> what, what about you, David? Fair enough. I agree with what you're saying. And I probably would have the same ranking. I would put the piano first and Bright Star second, just in terms of their artistry. You know, they are much more sophisticated, uh, refined. But, you know, if you ask me on any given day, I might give you a different answer and put Sweetie as number one, just because I have a personal connection to so much of what it's about. And um, I do think that, you know... What Daniel is saying is true. It's not a film that you would readily recommend to everybody. I would say approach with caution. You know, it is not a very palatable film. A lot of it is very off-putting. And you don't get much of a redemptive arc for any of the characters, uh, or at least not a conventional redemptive arc. But um, at the same time, I think if you want to understand anything about who Jane Campion is, it's a good place to dip into. And if you want to understand anything about all of that brash Australian cinema that came out of the 90s onwards uh, with women either, you know, marching to their own beat of their own drummer, like the Muriel's Wedding, you know, Rachel Griffiths and Tony Collette's characters, or like Essie Davis in The Babadook, like Kate Winslet in The Dressmaker, which is a bonkers batshit crazy movie if you haven't seen it but well worth seeing both for Kate Winslet and Judy Davis at her most insane and brilliant um but if you want to understand where they came from I think it's a good place to look as well you know that I I do think that there was a sort of a feminist an idiosyncratic feminist sensibility emerging in Australian film at that time that even in some films directed by men came through in in the the mode of observing female protagonists. And I think Swee very much helped smash that, smash that door wide open. Um, so to me, it deserves a lot of credit for that. And I, I do think it's not a film for everybody. It's not an easy film to like, but it is certainly an interesting ballsy film that, uh, you know, it, it, it was a, an auteur announcing her voice, announcing herself as somebody who was very much doing her own thing, even though she acknowledges certain influences like Lynch and John Lynch, as, as I said. So that's our discussion of Sweetie. Next week, we are going to dive into An Angel at My Table, and we will be joined by Alonzo Duraldi. We will be with you then after we have cut down all the trees in our neighborhood. David, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you online? They can find me at uh, hollywoodreporter.com and my Twitter feed is at David C. Rooney 1. 
There was already a David C. Rooney. <laughs> Rooney, How is, dare. Rooney is like Smith in Ireland. So there's a thousand bog standard Rooney's everywhere. But um, love a bog yeah. standard. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we are really grateful for you being here and being able to give us all the cultural context that we were too lazy to look up. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all next week. It's important to remember that the late 80s, uh, you know, when this film was made in 88, released in 89. The year um, I was born. Right. When I was you know, just a young thing, too. Uh, but um, <laughs> David's going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs>